Well, today we, uh, we continue our uh, study of a brace sheet of the book of Genesis. And so far, it's all been good news. You know, so far, it's all been about the Garden of Eden and how God made uh, a man and a woman, and, and it was idyllic setting, right? And what has God called humanity to be, and, and how it was very good, and there was the seventh day of rest, and, and then God, uh, you know, gave uh, man this uh, freedom uh, of a choice, and uh, you know, and then you have woman who is who comes out of the side of the man, and it's all good, right? All good. But then we come to chapter three, chapter three. So before we uh, we even start with chapter three, we need to remind ourselves of um, of something about how how you read passages of the Bible. Okay, and this is kind of uh, helpful, I think. You know, some people might understand this as uh, some, some aspects of it as poetry, uh, symbolism. Others might see it as narrative, more narrative. And I think we would fall into that category where we would see this as a narrative. Uh, this is what happened. But we always want to remember, and this is, uh, you're all welcome to the first, the first uh, uh, class of our uh, MSI Torah course. The first, and, probably, and probably all four that I teach every year on the Tanakh. Uh, and in the first class, we always talk about this issue. And that is, when we are reading about events that have taken place, we are not actually at the events that have taken place. So that means that we are not seeing them as they have occurred. Now, you might say, well, obviously. But that's not how we think. We think that the text is giving us all the information so that we have complete knowledge of the historical event as it happened, as if we were eyewitnesses. But it is not. It is a, it is a text that we are interacting with. It is a text that describes the event, right? So usually what I would do is uh, 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 draw a picture. So uh, here's us over here. Here's us. And here's the historical event itself, okay? And in between us and the historical event, I, I draw a box, a box. And in, inside of the box, I write the word text. So that our filter for understanding the historical event is the text. That means that like any history, it is a selective history. It is a theological history. It is the history as God would have us understand the historical event. See? Like, for example, when we're looking in Kings or in Chronicles or Joshua or Judges, when it talks about how God got the victory for the people, right? Well, yes, indeed, God got the victory for the people. But if we were watching it unfold, we might just see a bunch of people killing each other and somebody is victorious. See, but the way the text is written is to help the reader understand how uh, the, the historical event from God's perspective. Okay, this is also true, uh, and this is probably the biggest one of all: is the crucifixion of Yeshua. If we were present at the day when it was happening, we would not automatically assume, "Oh, Yeshua is dying for our sins." Okay, we would not 
see that happening. We would see this person in agony uh, up on that tree and, you know, uh, saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And his words, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? Pointing to Psalm 2 and all of that. And it'll be horrible. And isn't that exactly how the, uh, the disciples of Yeshua understood it? Because they all ran away, right? And in some cases even denied uh, who Yeshua was. But it was not until they received a revelation to understand how to interpret that historical event. And we are very conditioned and in a good way, to reading the text of the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant, to absolutely understand, oh, Yeshua, when he died, he died for our sins. Because the text, we know that because the God-breathed word, the text tells us. See, So, when we come to the third chapter of uh, Genesis, not all questions that we may have about this text are answered. Because we're not actually observing the history, we're observing the history through the text. And that is very important uh, for us to understand as this chapter will, uh, will unfold. Okay, so first we see the serpent. We're introduced, all of a sudden we got the serpent. The serpent kind of comes out of nowhere here. God created all the animals and all the animals are good, including snakes. Now, they're not kosher, right? Okay, so oh, not so good. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, they're, uh, but they're created along with all the other animals, right? Now, you know what's really interesting about this chapter is that I don't think there's anywhere in the chapter where uh, we read uh, about Satan, S-A-T-A-N, right? I, I, don't think, I don't think so. I think that it's talking about, it, it, it's uh, referring to the serpent. Now, later on, later on in the Bible, especially in the New Covenant, uh, we read quite clearly uh, that uh, the presence of Satan is in the garden, the, that evil is in the garden, right? Now, it's interesting because in the ancient world, when we read uh, about serpents, serpents are very interesting to read about in ancient literature, even in the Bible. For example, the serpent is not always viewed in a negative way in the Bible, right? One place is when, when everybody is diseased, right? And you have the bronze serpent. Everybody has to look at the bronze serpent to get healed, to get healed, right? And you read all kinds of twisting and turning in commentaries to make it like they had to face their evil in order to get healed. It doesn't say anything like that, okay, in, in, in the text, Right? So in the ancient world, snakes, serpents, were understood to be evil, were understood to bring healing, and were also understood to provide wisdom. Now, can you think in your mind of a, of a verse in the Bible where a snake is used as an illustration of how we should act? Yes, Yeshua himself, be wise as a serpent. I love that gentle as a dove business. I can, that I can handle. You know, that's inside the box. But be wise as a serpent? Yes. So there you go. So the serpent is not always viewed in a negative way. It, it has to do with the context. Okay? It's very interesting because when it says right at the beginning of chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty. Arum is the word that's used. 
And it could be used because it may be a play on words, because it uses basically the same consonants as the word naked, okay, as, it's, as you have in verse 25. So it could be a play on words. But what is interesting about this particular word, it is a neutral word. In other words, sometimes it can be used uh, for the word cunning, crafty, or even prudent, see? Uh, and so it depends on, uh, the, uh, on the context of, uh, of what we have here. And so we see here that uh, we, might, we might say, now crafty is not bad because it is a negative context, and, he's doing, and the, the serpent certainly represents the presence of evil in the garden, and we know later on that this is understood to be uh, a Satan. But according to what we read here, the serpent is more crafty. We could uh, say clever, we could use that word, but crafty is not bad because it is uh, a very negative because we're going to notice what's going to happen here at the beginning of chapter 3. And, uh, you know, this really has great revel- relevance for our, uh, for our lives if we ever have the opportunity to have a conversation with someone, a debate or a conversation with someone about the Messiah who uh, definitely does not believe and is trying to prove a point. Do you ever have a conversation like that? Maybe, I know if Eric, I don't know if Eric's here or not, Eric has those conversations every day, right? Uh, and, uh, and perhaps uh, you, do, uh, you do as well. Um, because what we have here unfolding is the very first conversation about God. The first conversation about God, where two entities are having a discussion about what God said and what it means. So frame that way, this really becomes quite relevant, I think, uh, to our uh, lives. So the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. So it's quite clear that this is something that the Lord had made. This is one of the animals that by its creation is good. Okay? Remember that next time you see a snake. Okay. Okay, so the next thing we notice, not only is he crafty, but he can communicate, he can speak, can speak to humans. So here, here's, there's two questions, right, that people want to know the answer to. Could, was the snake standing up? Okay, that's one. And number two is, did he speak whatever language Adam and Eve were speaking? Did he, like, speak to them? The text doesn't tell us. And, and, and I think that in this case, it is... I, uh, now, when we get to the end of the chapter, we'll talk a little bit more about that, the judgment on the, on the snake. We'll talk more about it at that point. But right here, that is not relevant. That is not relevant. The point is, is that evil is first not, not originating in the man and the woman. That's kind of interesting. It's not originating in the man. Evil is presented as a choice to the man and the woman. Okay? That's very helpful. All right. So he says, speaks to the woman. Oh, now I need to say this. In verse 2, no, in verse uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, the yous are plural. So he's talking to the man and the woman, okay? Even though he's saying, he says to the woman, but he's not just saying you, singular, but you, unit, okay? All right. 
Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Take it easy. All right. Okay. Uh, very good. Uh, has, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? This is, as, as much as it is a question, it's a statement, all right, like a challenge, a sort of like a rhetorical question, right? And so the first words of the snake, when you read them carefully, exaggerate what God has said. Exaggerate what God has said. He grossly exaggerates the prohibition. He claims in this statement that God did not allow them access to any trees. Right? Indeed, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that what God says? Okay. Apart from this claim of total distortion, what is happening and what is the serpent doing? What is evil doing? It is attempting to create in the woman's mind or in their mind the impression that God is spiteful and mean and obsessively jealous and self-protective. This is not an innocent question. This is not, hey, let me ask you a question. This is like, you know how um, you read uh, when the uh, Pharisees and the scribes would test Yeshua, says they tested him, and then they ask a question that they're, they're trying to trick him, right? That's kind of like what's happening here. This is, not a, this is not an innocent question. This is a question to put doubt in the mind of the woman and the man, see? Because the enemy knows that uh, if... You know, if uh, if the woman and the man are going to sin, they have to go down a road of of uh, doubting the word, uh, not quite sure what it means, and then be convinced otherwise. Okay, all right. So that is the statement uh, of the um, of the uh, of the serpent. Okay, okay. So now. Eve has the opportunity to defend God's position, right? And, and give clarification, okay? Now, we have her response. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you, not, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Okay, so just as... The serpent has exaggerated what God has said. Now, in the response of Eve, there's some confusion. There's some confusion about what God actually says. Notice that she says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Now she's right. Right here, now she's right. But then she says, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle, God has said, you shall not eat. Let's stop there. Go back to chapter 2 in verse 9. And let's look at that carefully, about the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst or the middle of the garden. And the tree of good and evil, and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you'll notice that when Eve is responding... She does not say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She says the tree that's in the middle of the garden. There's some confusion, okay? 
And then she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it. She exaggerates. He never says, don't touch it. The point being is that in her response, there is some uh, a lack of a clarity of exactly what it is God said, of exactly what he said, we should, the tree we shouldn't eat, and exactly how we are uh, to uh, interact with, uh, with, these, with these trees. So Eve is attempting to provide a corrective. She's doing what a lot of us would do, say, no, 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 that's not right, right? But in doing so, she exaggerates. She doesn't get it exactly right or does not provide uh, a, a clarity, okay? Uh, when she talks about the tree in the middle of the garden, not quite sure there if it's the tree of life, which in the text, the way you would read the text is the tree of life is in the middle of the garden. And th then, then it says, and after that, then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's rather, rather interesting. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, the issue of not touching it. Okay. So apparently, she has read a little too much into the prohibition. And, uh, you know, it could be, uh, you know, innocent embellishments and things of that nature, but it paves the way. It opens the door for the evil, for the enemy to walk right in, okay? Her lack of clarity and a little bit of exaggeration opens the door. And so now the serpent says to the woman, you surely shall not die. Okay, so there you have a lie, right? You shall not die. Clearly, the text earlier says, if you eat from the, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, okay? And now you surely shall not die. Why? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing uh, good and evil. Okay. So the uh, serpent here speaks uh, about, uh, about all the good things that will happen if you eat from the, uh, from the tree. Uh, lies and perhaps half-truths, or a little bit of truth, a lot of bit of lying. First, when he says, you surely shall not die, as we will learn, well, no one dies right away. In fact, it takes a long time for them to die. It takes a really long time. When you read the genealogy uh, in the fifth chapter, okay? So uh, it, is, uh, it is not true. It is not true that they will die immediately, but they will die, okay? And then when he says, for God knows that in a day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil, there is an assumption here that that's a really good thing. Like that's enticing, Okay? So the way that the serpent is talking about this, he is again and now more so describing God as selfish and unkind after, and holding them back from what they could be. After all, why should we not have the knowledge of good and evil? Why should we die? Why, why is God holding us back from all that we could be? Huh. Do you see what's happening? You see what's happening in this exchange, in this conversation about God. The, the woman and the man who is standing right there with her are becoming more and more skeptical, evidently, 
about God because they're listening to the words of the enemy. They're listening to what he's saying. Okay. All right. So now uh, we see here that uh, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable to make uh, one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate and gave it also to her husband with her, uh, and he ate. So not only are they thinking now a little differently, not only have these uh, seeds of doubt come into the mind by entertaining these thoughts uh, in this conversation, but now there is an experiential uh, aspect uh, to this. Right, and so uh, we see here that um, uh, if she was to indulge herself, she determines what is good. Right, it looked good, so she is deciding this is good. Okay, what God said not to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she is thinking this is good. Okay, and a delight to the eyes. It's it's pleasant. It's pleasant. And, uh, and uh, it's got to be mighty tasty, even though uh, evidently she doesn't know that. But it looked good, right? And then, interestingly enough, it says, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's very interesting. That word desirable is the very same word that is used in the Ten Commandments for the word covet. Very same word. Very same word, okay? And so she wants something that seemingly she cannot have because God said no, but she wants it bad enough. And after all, okay, so um, we won't die. Uh, and we can be like God, knowing, knowing, uh, good and, uh, knowing good and evil. And so indulgence here would give to the woman something that she did not have in her, in her own judgment that she did not possess, and that is wisdom, right? And so we see here that uh, she wants something that evidently to, in her mind and in his mind too, I, I believe, but as it says here in the text, uh, that she was deficient and that God was holding her back uh, and maybe doesn't understand or whatever, but... But here now, seemingly, she can rationalize eating the fruit. Because after all, God created us in his image. And so if I eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's, that's a good thing to be like God, knowing good and evil. It's like a good thing. And so uh, she falls to the temptation and thinks that now I will uh, indeed... Uh, be happy. And I'll have this knowledge of good and evil, all knowledge like God has. And so what could be wrong? And so we see that they both ate. Okay? She eats and she gives it uh, to Adam and, and he eats. They are an echad. You know, let me just pause there and say, they're an, an echad. They are incomplete without each other. Okay? Uh, and so uh, this is not a passage to go off on some tangent about women and men. 
uh, but she uh, eats it, and he eats it too. Okay. Now notice the re the response, the reaction of this. Then the eyes of them were both opened. Okay, here we go. Now their eyes are opened, and they know, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So that's interesting. Suddenly, their eyes are opened, and they certainly don't have full knowledge of everything that there is to know. They're not like God having a, you know, a, a omniscience. Okay? But the first thing that we notice is that they are self-conscious. They're conscious about themselves. They know now they are naked. And they must cover themselves, right? And so I, th this is not the case in uh, chapter 2, as it says at the very end of chapter 2, and the, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Clearly, this is the bridge to what's you know, uh, coming, coming up here in chapter 3. So now they are naked and they are ashamed. And they have to go hide. And they have to cover themselves. This was not supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Eating from that uh, a tree was supposed to bring me great knowledge and I, I'll be like God and it's tasty and, and I'll be fulfilled and I'll be satisfied because I know what I need. I really know what I need. And so I'm going to go and eat from that tree and man, it's going to work out because we're not really going to die and we're going to be like God. Wow! So we eat and oh! How many of us have ever fallen to some kind of temptation and leading up to the temptation? All the way, first a thought comes in our mind, right? Somehow. A thought comes in our mind and the question then becomes, what am I going to do with that thought? What am I going to do with it? Do I entertain it or do I dismiss it? Okay, what we see here is, is that the human beings here entertain the thought and kind of started having a conversation along these lines, right? Uh, and then before you know it, we do what we never thought we would do. And as the uh, thought germinates and grows and sprouts and we place ourselves in a situation where falling to that temptation is within arm's length, then we might as well be atheists for about 15 minutes. Because forget about it. Forget about what I know. Forget about what God has said. Forget about uh, all my years of uh, understanding or this and that or, or my, you know, uh, how I've experienced God. But that little place in my brain is telling me, eat the fruit because you're really missing out, right? And so with great anticipation and great expectation, they eat. And what happens? What a disappointment. The air comes out of the balloon right away. Now their eyes are opened, and it's not, there's nothing about wonderful here. There's nothing about, hey, this was great. I have no regrets. It's, oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm naked, and I have to cover up. And of course, in the next verse, and I have to hide from God. That's what happens. That is what takes place here. 
That is the, this becomes the paradigm of sin, see. And so this brings out the fact that we have a hard time, a very hard time using the freedom that God has given us as, as being created in the image and likeness of God. Yes, we could say, why didn't God, why did he even put the, the tree in there? Why did he even allow them to have the temptation? Because they're created in the image and likeness of God. And choice is part of being created in the image and likeness of God. See, And so here we see we are not a God. We are a little lower than God. And this is why we are not God. Because we always have the potential of choosing wrong. And what we see is that in, uh, in this uh, in this sin of the first man and woman, the consequences of their sin have ramifications for every other human being that will ever live. And we, didn't, we haven't gotten to that place in the passage yet. And so we'll understand how that is and what that is and why that is, okay, in the judgment part. But it's very important uh, for us to recognize here that uh, this is the paradigm, you know, of uh, of our own of our own uh, sin. The serpent the serpent spoke only about what she would gain and avoided mentioning what she would lose in the process. Right? They didn't die immediately, but first they're expelled from the place of delight, uh, and they and they eventually do die, and that we have to save for a couple of chapters away. Right? So, as a result of this great opportunity, they end up being expelled from the garden. Right? Uh, and we see that they, uh, they ended up achieving isolation and fear and cut off from the possibility of uh, that uh, tree of life uh, uh, and forget about the wisdom. They, uh, and so it's very important for us to understand that as the, as the paradigm of humanity, the paradigm of human, Adam and Eve are the, are the model of humanity and what happens to people created in the image and likeness of God when we listen to other voices and not the word of God. And what's interesting, this does not, obviously, when, when one uh, does not have the the uh, relationship with God and Yeshua, when one does not have their uh, sins uh, forgiven, uh, they, they, they just live con- maybe decent people, good people, and, and making uh, you know, some really good decisions in life and here and there. But, but the point is, uh, still excluded because of the sin of Adam and Eve, part of the ramifications that are excluded from that intimacy with God because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But even when we are reclaimed, even when we know the Lord, how many of us would say, well, when I came to know the Lord, that was that, right? I, I don't think any of us uh, would or should uh, I, uh, say that, right? Uh, and so, they, uh, so we see what ends up happening is guilt, shame, isolation, fear, okay? Look outside. Whether people recognize it, call it that or not, guilt, shame, isolation, and fear all add up to the way the world is. 
on many, you know, many levels. As I like to say, it's like peeling an onion, you know. There are many levels of that. And uh, for so many years and ways, we have rationalized that kind of behavior in varieties of ways and different centuries and, and you know, uh, with different kinds of uh, philosophies and, and also different kinds of band-aids to take the pain away, right? But you see that guilt, that shame, that isolation, and that fear is taken up by Yeshua when he died for our sins. And we have the opportunity to be in fellowship with God and to have real satisfaction and joy and peace when we walk with him. But yet we still sin. But you see, uh, we read in the scriptures very clearly, first of all, if we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar. But when we confess our sins, we have the assurance. Yeshua has already died for our sins. And we can be, we are forgiven and we are reconciled. We are cleansed. You see? And so we are right back there in, in fellowship uh, with God. And so there are a couple of verses I want to finish up with here from the New Covenant that uh, have to do with uh, what we're talking about. One is right there in 1 John, actually. 1 John chapter 2. Okay? If you may remember, we spent some time looking at uh, this uh, book of the Bible recently. So in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 16, it talks about loving the world, loving the world, loving the system of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boast, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You could make a case that uh, the lust of the flesh you know, it, uh, the uh, fruit would be uh, good to the taste, right? The lust of the eyes, it was desirable. And the pride of life, ah, the ability to become wise, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And so we need to be careful what we listen to uh, and, the, and the conversations uh, that we have about God so that so that we, are, we need to make sure that we are walking with God in a strong way so that we uh, uh, do not fall into the very same trap. And what was the first problem that uh, Eve had, that the woman had? She was not completely clear on the word of God. She basically had it down, but she was not completely clear. And this opened up the door for doubt and sin and temptation and fall. So let us make sure uh, that uh, we are guarding our hearts and our minds in Messiah Yeshua by what we entertain, what, you know, the, and the conversations that we have. You know, not everybody can have a conversation with a skeptic. Not everybody can do that. Because sometimes... Those who are uh, skeptical will tell half-truths, will uh, be crafty, uh, certainly in their presentation, and cause doubt and uh, train wreck of faith. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Okay? The other passage uh, is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, here you go. So here we are, and Paul is actually um, referring to 
uh, Genesis chapter 3 in this verse. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to, uh, to uh, Messiah. Okay? That is a great verse. So he's concerned that, just, in other words, this is what he's saying, that Adam and Eve are like the paradigm for sin. Don't just go back and look at that as the theological father and mother of sin, but the model of sin. This is the model uh, 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 for us. So just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, don't let your minds be led astray. Sometimes I think our pride gets in the way. I've had enough spiritual experiences or I've had enough knowledge. Nobody could ever uh, dissuade me or put you know, doubt uh, in my mind of the reality of the Messiah. You know, some doubt is just uh, not understanding our circumstances. That's different. We're talking here about doubt as to what the Word of God says. Do I believe what the Word says? We have to be careful. We could all be led astray if we placed ourselves in the, in the right circumstance and in the right state of being in our lives. So that's why we always have to have that armor of God on. We always are in a spiritual battle, as the Scripture says in several different places. Right? We should never be so presumptuous as to think, well, I have arrived. I have arrived. You know, some of the smartest people who know the Bible backwards, forwards, and sideways, not only in the original language, but in languages around the world, fall and, uh, and uh, lose their faith or never believed it in the first place or whatever. And there are those who have been to services and have had varieties of, of uh, you know, have, have witnessed and have maybe experienced all kinds of things taking place, you know, uh, wow, what a service, God did this, God did that, he did this, and people, again, fall, walk away from the faith. I have seen it, and maybe you have too. You stick around long enough, you, you, you can see it. And so we must always desire the milk of the Word of God. We must always desire to move forward and to study the word and to know God's word and to be in prayer and to not be prideful to think we have arrived or we know it. Pride comes when? Before a fall, see? And so what does he say here? That your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity. Simplicity, not simplicity like simpleton simplicity. It's not what that means, Okay. It means single-mindedness. It would be better to say it that even. Single-mindedness and the purity of devotion to Messiah. Devotion, our relationship with the Messiah, is always our motivation uh, in, our, in our understanding and our study of the Word of God. Make no mistake. When we talk about study Hebrew, study Greek, or you know, take this course, that course at MSI, or... Uh, learn how to do observational Bible study on Shabbat afternoon. The end goal is always a deeper walk with God, not just gaining knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Okay? You know, there is a verse that says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Right? That does not mean knowledge is bad. Okay? Knowledge can be very good as long as it's leading to the walk with God, the deeper devotion uh, to God 
And so important that when we are reading the Bible, first of all, that we're reading the Bible. Let's, let's just start with that, right? One of the ways of safeguarding our hearts and our minds is to read the Bible. Don't worry about, do I understand everything I'm reading? Believe me, you are interacting with the Word of God. It has a transformative effect in the experience that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and there's something going on when you read the Bible. Now, you have to have your head focused on it. You might want to turn off the TV, right? Or you might want to turn off music at the same time. You might want to do that, okay? Uh, And that's fine to read it electronically or in a book. That's fine. But what I would suggest is read it devotionally. Read it, just read it, but pay attention at least to what you're reading, okay? It's not magic, you know? Uh, Pay attention to it. Uh, And this is what I suggest to people, that we need to read the Bible daily, right? We need to read it in big swaths. Like even if you just read for 15 minutes, just read it. That's a great, that's great. But then maybe you can dedicate in a course of a week, maybe a 20-minute period of one day, How's that? Out of the seven, to say, I'm going to look at four verses and I'm just going to read that over and over again and I'm going to see what I can gain from reading that, just observing every single word in that text. And that's a good thing too. See? So there's a variety of ways of reading the Bible and of studying uh, the, the Word of God. That is a great safeguard, but at least read it. Do not, please, as you know, I beg of you by the mercies of God. All right. Do not think that I'm not smart enough to study the Bible, so why would I even want to read it? Because I can't understand what it says anyway. You're missing the point. If you have received Messiah into your life and the Spirit of God dwells in you, something happens when you read the Bible. Okay? It does. And then being in fellowship with other believers that can pour into your life words of encouragement and edification uh, one to the other, you know? And that is why we read so many times, one another, one another, one another, one another in the Brit Hadashah. Because just like in the creation of man and woman, we are incomplete without each other. And so we need one another if we're going to safeguard our lives uh, from, uh, from sin. But we know that even as uh, blood-bought Messiah followers, we still have the flesh. So we're still going to sin. We're not all the way there yet, Right? And, and so, therefore, uh, I encourage you never, if you fall to a temptation, one of these, you have some train wreck, do not run away from God. Do not hide. He is looking for you. But we have to save that for two weeks from today, okay? And we're going to look all about uh, God looking for the man and the woman. And what, although it's kind of a tragedy, it is very enriching to understand the heart of God in all of this, because he never gives up. He never, ever gives up. Uh, you know, he will hunt you down, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so run to him, even when you have the train wreck, run to him, uh, because he's waiting with open arms. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, God, that this, these verses help us to understand why we are what we are, why we do what we do. Why is it that everything seems to be going okay and then all of a sudden, bam, fell to that temptation? Lord, thank you that you have helped us to understand by looking at our origins, not only how marvelous your creation is and how valued we are by you, 
But we understand from this text why we as valued creatures created in your image and likeness could possibly sin. Thank you, Lord, that you give us clarity and understanding that. And now as we will move forward in the chapter, Lord, thank you that we're going to understand your heart and we're also going to understand consequences. But Lord, we thank you, God, that you, even though you give us the choice, you are the God of deliverance, that you will never allow your end game, your goal to be thwarted. Thank you, God, that your grace and your mercy is greater than our sin. We thank you for that in Yeshua's name.